Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 384. This program is dedicated in merit of Baruch Binyamin ben Menuchelena and Miriam Baschaya Sara Altais, and Yukasil ben Lea Rochel and Rochel Bas Liba Farkash, dedicated by Pinchas Todris ben Miriam and Sara Bas Rochel Altais. So we are right in the middle of the month of Tavis, the 15th of Tavis, full moon of this month, and we are entering into the Pasha Shmois, the first chapter of the second book of the Torah, as the Ramban calls the entire book, Sefer HaGeula, because the primary theme of this uh, book is the redemption from Egypt. So even though the first two and a half chapters talk about the exile, the bitter exile and bondage and holocaust that the Jews went through, Yet, the whole purpose of it all, and what ultimately shines forth, is how the Jews were forged into a nation and were redeemed, which would lead to Kriya Shamsuv and the Matan Torah, receiving the Torah, also in this book, and then building the Mishkan, which you have the major events that shaped history and shaped, and shaped the Jewish people, all happening in this book. But it all begins with the story that after the, uh, Yosef and all the Shvatim passed away, after their father Yaakov passed away, by Yochum el as the beginning of this chapter tells us, a new king arose, two opinions, whether he was an actual new king or he conveniently forgot all that was done for him and decided that the Jews were a threat. He enslaved them and ultimately they suffered for quite a few years until Hashem chose Moshe Rabbeinu and he sent as the savior Gael Rishon to redeem the Jewish people. The story of the 10 plagues in this week's chapter, next week's chapter, and finally in Parsha Boy. And in the middle of Parsha Boy, as I said, two and a half chapters into this book, the 15th of Nisan, that year, the Jewish people left Egypt. That would be 3,334 years ago because it was in the year 2448. We're now in the year 5782. So it's not yet 3,334, but it's coming to that. Pesach this year will be, but we're still in the 3,333rd year, 3333 from that redemption. And we know it wasn't just a redemption then. As the Maral says, it was a redemption forever. It instilled into the Jewish people a personality of freedom that they never again could be enslaved to anything human and any human creation, human inventions. You are God, you're my servants, not servants to my servants. Which in itself is a tremendous lesson in life that there's nothing in this world that should frighten us because we do not worship anything. We worship only a higher reality, God himself. And that is critical as the famous story with the Baal Shem Tov when he was a child on his, on his father's deathbed. One of the things he told his little son, Yisrael, he said, remember, fear nothing but God. If we were able to capture that and live by it, we would have no fears, insecurities, all those inhibitions and neurosis that are due to man-made events, man-made experiences, abuse, imagined or real, all that would be gone. So that's hard work. 
But nevertheless, we know we can work toward that. So in essence, the whole idea of Geula was really, as we say when we recreate it every year by the Seder Pesach, that what, what, what stood, all the challenges was our faith, was the promise. And when you're able to connect to that, no matter what happens in life, you can, manipulate, you can navigate and manage. So that's the first lesson, the immediate lesson we learn, that as difficult as the story is, as difficult as the bondage and the slavery and all the exile that they endured, the early verses of Shmais, it says, as they were afflicted, as they were oppressed, in direct proportion to that, they flourished and they thrived. That's the ultimate, the ultimate story. Now, of course, God should bless each one of us that we shouldn't have to be afflicted or be oppressed or be hurt in any way. But life has its challenges. So the story of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Golis Mitzrayim, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is exactly that. And that's why we tell the story. Why do we need to know all the details, all the painful, agonizing details that is related and we read every year? Because we're told we're supposed to recreate it in our lives. In every generation, every day, the Alter Rebbe adds, we have to vision, envision ourselves leaving Mitzrayim. What does that mean? Many of us were never in Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim comes from the word Mitzrayim Begvulim. It refers not just to the physical land called Mitzrayim, Egypt, but it refers to every psychological, emotional, spiritual um, constraint, oppression that we, ex- we experience. And that's why we're told the story. We need to hear about it. And know that it's not the end of the narrative. It all leads toward greater growth and becoming a great nation and the same thing on a microcosmic level for each individual. So that's lesson number one, a primary lesson. Sefer HaGa'ula. Despite the setbacks, despite the difficulties, it ultimately is about redemption. And the same thing with this goal. Just as it was then, when they led the days when they left Egypt, so too, in the future, I will show you wonders. We compare it to Mitzrayim. Elamase b'nei Yisrael k'sheyotzim Mitzrayim. All the forty-two journeys are all an extension of leaving Mitzrayim, because Mitzrayim symbolizes all the all the Goliaths, all the exiles, are named after Mitzrayim because they all refer to being oppressed, being displaced, a form of dissonance, a disconnect between you and your source, between you and your purpose. And in a more extreme way, when there's actual affliction, actual hurt, and actual pain, and suffering, and anxiety. And that all leads toward a journey toward Gu'ula. So with that, let us address certain specific questions that came in regarding Pasha Shmois. And I will begin. How did Moshe find out he was Jewish? If Moses was raised as a baby by the daughter of Pharaoh, who found him floating in a basket on the river Nile, and he grew up in the palace thinking he was part of Pharaoh's family, how did he know or find out he was really Jewish? So that's the story, of course. Because of the gzeda, the decree, the harsh decree of Pharaoh, that all boys should be thrown into the Nile. So his mother, Yecheved, Moshe's mother, put him in a basket, waterproofed it, put him at the edge of the the river Nile, and sent Miriam to watch over him. And that's when the daughter of Fari came to bathe and she saw this basket. She heard a child crying. And the story goes, she brought him, threw him out of the water, as the story continues, and ultimately brought him into Fari's home, and that's where he grew up. 
But then the Pasuk says that he went out and he sought to, to see his brothers who were oppressed. So the Torah assumes that he knew they, they were his brothers. As a matter of fact, the story continues that he saw an Egyptian striking one of his brothers, meaning one of the Jews. And that's when he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. So clearly Moshe was aware. So it shouldn't surprise anyone. First of all, the Pasuk says that Moshe was born, his, the family, his family, his mother knew, it says she saw it was good. It says Rashi, the whole house filled with light. So in other words, Moshe's consciousness was clearly one of a special child. Special child, special and unique. Secondly, Miriam watched over him. Thirdly, when no one would nurse it, that the child would not nurse any of the Egyptian women, so the daughter of Pharaoh sent Miriam to find the Jewish woman, and she brought the mother, Yechevet, to nurse Moshe Rabbeinu. So it's not far-fetched, it's quite even logical, that Moshe, either subconsciously or consciously, was quite aware of who he was. And as he grew up in Pharaoh's home, it doesn't say anywhere he thought that his father was Pharaoh. He grew up in the home. Now why Pharaoh did not recognize that he was Jewish, or did he? And he forgave because it was due to the fact that he came from Shevet Levi, who were not enslaved, or due to the fact that Pharaoh's daughter was, was bringing up this child. The bottom line is, that it does not, doesn't require a miracle to understand that Moshe Rabbeinu had some awareness. Secondly, even on a very normal level, we find people who, even though they may not know that they're adopted, they sense something. Moshe went out and saw the Jew suffering. He clearly, he understood and empathized that there was something, something connected between him and them. And then, of course, this, the obvious would be that someone told him. Remember, he, was now, he wasn't a child any longer. At some point, he was told, in addition to everything that I've said. The bottom line is he did find out, and he acted on it. The powerful story that immediately he defended the Jewish people, and he killed the Egyptian that was hitting the Jew. So that brings us to the next question. Who were the two Jewish men who saw Moshe Rabbeinu kill the Mitzri? and threatened to report Moshe to, far, to, par, to Pare. Why in the world would they do that? Whose side were they on? The Mitzrim were torturing us. Did these two men prefer to be enslaved in Egypt instead of supporting Moshe Rabbeinu, helping us and bring us out to freedom to receive the Torah? So when you read the, the Pasuk, it's very, very it's direct. It says clearly. It says Moshe did look through, to, here and there and to, see if, to see if anybody was watching. He killed the Egyptian. Then the next day, on the coming days, he went and saw two Jews fighting with each other. And he said to them, why are you doing that? And they said, what are you going, who are you anyway? A prince in Egypt, who are you? Are you going to now do to us what you did to the Egyptians? So Moshe clearly knew, saw that they had seen it. And then they informed on Moshe. And, and the empire gave him to the executioner. He wasn't able to kill him, so Moshe escaped then to Midian. The two people, says clearly, and Rashi brings it, Dosen Vaviram, the two troublemakers that would make trouble throughout the, throughout the journeys through the wilderness. They're the ones that ate, it took for the man two parts, even though you're supposed to only take one part each day. And other trouble that they made, Dosen Vaviram. Now it is true, there were people who became accustomed to living in Egypt and did not want to leave Egypt. 
unfortunately. There were those. The Medrash says there were many people who died in Makos Cheshach, in the plague of darkness, because they didn't want to leave Egypt. Now you could say, how, how could that be? Well, you know what? There were kapos in the concentration camps as well. They thought to save their own skin. They would turn in other Jews. They would hurt other Jews. We don't like to talk about this painful chapter. Dasim Vaviram were those type of Jews. And we're told about them because we need to know that there's always that, the sign, that test. And yes, it seems extremely illogical that they would turn on their own and form just to protect their own, self, their own selves and try to benefit from it. But at the end of the day, every person has the ability to do tshuva and every person has the ability to correct their ways. But in answering the question, that was the story with them. So a follow-up question to that is, why is that some Rishayim, like Dostan and Aviram, were fortunate to have their names and their lineage mentioned in the Torah, the blueprint of the world, when there were likely many tzaddikim who lived in those times whose names we don't even know? It almost seems like it was worth for them to be Rishayim, wicked people, and have their names remembered for eternity. The same can be asked for many other bad people. A similar question the Rebbe talks about why there's a Pasha called Kairach, though he was a rebellious, a Pasha called Bolok, even though it says Shem Yishayim Yirkov, that the names of a wicked people should be erased, should be eliminated. So there's a few points here. First of all, when it says something in the Torah, even Yaakov Esav Hamurim Bapasha explains the Rebbe, that Esav, though Esav was who Esav was, but when it's Hamurim Bapasha in the Torah, the Torah elevates everyone. What does that mean? The way Esav is in the Torah, it's talking about the, how the Torah sees him. So though he behaved a certain way, but yet there's always a source for everything in the Torah. Even Lovan or Esav, who are definitely Lovan Arasha, he was a, a Lovan Arami, he was a cruel, corrupt swindler. Yet it says in Kabbalah that he's rooted in love and leven ha'elyon, in the supernal whiteness, in the purest levels and the highest levels of keser. How do you reconcile the two? Because everything in this world has a root in heaven. When it evolves, it can evolve to be the exact opposite of how it is in its highest level. Kol something the higher it is, noifel falls lower and lower like the highest stone on a, on a wall falls the farthest from the wall. And then there's Zelu Lekim. God created the world like a mirror image, parallel worlds, the positive and the negative. And we need to know there's negative. So I wouldn't call it necessarily that they merited to be in the Torah because they were wicked. The opposite, they had some significance which they used for the negative purposes. Remember, anyone that has power in the negative means they have power in the positive. The Torah is telling us, it says, the greater a person, the greater the Yetzirah, the greater their challenges. So when we learn about these individuals, we're not coming to glorify their wickedness, obviously. We're coming to, first of all, in order for us to learn how not to behave, it's like a lesson to each of us, but it also, on a deeper level, teaches us their deeper strengths, which unfortunately they used, or when it comes down to below, is, was used in the opposite direction. And like we discussed a few weeks ago, every detail in the Torah, every narrative, every character, is all part of the blueprint for life. 
So each of these stories and each of these individuals are characters and archetypes that we can identify with and find within ourselves and address it. So every one of us may have that temptation to inform, God forbid, on another person, to take care of our own needs instead of our brethren and our brothers and sisters. So we learn from Das and Baviram. And throughout the journeys, they represented those rebellious individuals who later joined with Kairach as well in mutineering against Moshe Rabbeinu. And we need to know about that because there's also that element in life, both spiritually and also physically. So if the Tater mentions someone, it's coming to that context. Ultimately, the goal is the tshuva that they do. That the darkest, even though it may have, they have fallen in a dark place, but they have the power to transform the darkness. That even deliberate sins, can be transformed into merits. Not the actual sin, the spark within it is transformed. Now, the next part of the story is that Moshe goes to Midian and he tends to the sheep of Yisrael. That's where he'll meet his wife, Zipporah. But there begins the story where Moshe is out in the grazing in the fields and sees from a distance, he sees the burning bush. And he approaches it and sees that it's burning, but it's not being consumed. And that's when Hashem appears to Moshe for the first time and says to him, I want you to go back to Egypt. And in my name, I want you to approach Pharaoh and tell him, Send my, let my people go so they can serve me. This is the beginning of the Geula. So one of the questions is, what is the significance of God talking to Moshe from inside a burning bush? Would the message God was trying to convey to Moshe have been different if, he, if God spoke from inside a tidal wave or from inside a frozen ice cream sundae? Somewhat, some, uh, I guess, uh, type of tongue-in-cheek analogies. But I would put it, phrase it more this way. Why from a thorn bush? Why not from an apple tree? Why not from a fruit tree, a beautiful tree? God appears the first time to Moshe, a lowly thorn bush. And what's the significance that it's burning and it's not being consumed? So the Medrash says, why a thorn bush? Because Hashem was preempting a big question that Moshe would ask. I'm explaining the Medrash. The Medrash says because to show that God is everywhere, even the lowliest thorn bush. A very simple question. Moshe would say, you're sending me to go redeem the Jews. Why don't you show me that you're part, the Jews are going to ask, and so will I, are you part of our pain? Are you with us? Or do you stand aloof in a distance? And you only appear in beauty. Had Hashem appeared in a beautiful tree, God, Moshe would say, you appear in beauty, but what about in pain? So Hashem preempted that. He appeared in a painful tree, in a tree that symbolizes no fruit, a thorn bush, thorns, bitterness, sharp needles, affliction, oppression, to show that I am this, I am with you. Like we'll later learn, in Tzavim, and the Gemara says, Shechinta begalusa, the Ebesh to goes, Golul shechinu, the Shekhinah is with them. And with that, it gives the power to know God is with you here. Now why there had to be a Golis, those are the deeper reasons and mysterious reasons. Hashem already told Avram Avinu. 
same question, why do we have to come into this world as a dark, corrupt, hostile world? That's the purpose. But don't think you're alone in this world. Later we'll learn, boy al pare. The Zoya says, why does it say, boy, come to pare, not leich, go? Because there again, Moshe was afraid to go. Because he saw pare in, his, in, in the abyss, the heart of the abyss, he saw pare in the, in the core of the of the great serpent. And he was afraid to approach him. So Hashem says, come, and come with me, I'm going with you. So that's the first lesson. And why is it a burning bush and it's not consumed? Because that's the point. That even though it's a thorn bush, there's always a fire that's burning. And the fire never ends. That's the, even when the, the, the thorn bush seemingly you know, ultimately, the fire should burn out. The fire should destroy the thorn bush. No, the fire continues to burn, and the bush does not get consumed, which means there's something eternal, that even though you're in this painful place, there's a fire with you. And the fire will not destroy you, the fire will continue to burn, and you will be intact until you come out of this dark place. Kisheshana ben like a thorn, like a rose among thorns, which we say about actually about Rivka. So the story is the story of our lives. That though we live sometimes in a difficult place, in a thorn bush, life can sometimes feel that way, and yet the fire is burning, and that's where the Shechina, that's where the divine reveals himself. Why was Moshe commanded to take off his sandals before approaching the burning bush, if the area was considered holy? And wearing shoes or dirty shoes would be disrespectful. Then why in general do we not remove our shoes when we walk into a shul or a yeshiva? Except in the cases where kahanim take off their shoes before they bless us. So generally speaking, yes, taking off shoes is a sign of sacred ground. We do it also when we go to the oil. The kahanim, as you mentioned. And in general, when you're in sacred ground. Here, taking off the shoes was symbolic of that. This was sacred ground at the time. Didn't remain that way, but sacred ground. So Moshe Rabbeinu was take, take off the shoes, take off shoes. Which physically, shoes are made out of leather. In this case, maybe they may not have been leather, whatever they're made of. But it's a sign of humility. It's a sign of not trampling on something. You walk with much more tenderly. And recognizing this is, this is sacred ground. Why we don't do so in a shul? or in the yeshiva, because there are levels of sanctity. There are levels of sanctity. There's a Beis HaMikdash, Kedush Kadoshim, or the Kahanim as they serve there, that, that level of sanctity, or Moshe by the burning bush. But that doesn't mean that every time there's Kedusha, we have to take off our shoes. Even though the Beis HaKnesses and Beis HaMedish is a Mikdash Ma'at, like a mini sanctuary, but that's not the halacha because it's, at the end of the day, not that level of holiness. And that's also important to know. Just like we have, for example, Shabbos, Yom Tov, and weekdays. So Shabbos is Shabbos Kedish, complete holiness. Yom Tov is Mikroi Kedish. Chalamoid is Chalamoid. It's part Kedish, it's still a Yom Tov, but you can do work that day. Says Chsidis, why? Because it's like a Mamutza, an interface. There are places where it's complete Gedusha. There are places that are complete Choyl, weekday. And then we have interfaces, a place that's holy, 
but you can still wear your shoes, you still go to work. The point being that it interfaces between the holy and the mundane. And that's the goal, is to unite and integrate all of them, all these levels. Okay. During its years in Shem, Hashem says, I will take you out from Egypt. Does that imply its Yitzh Mitzrayim came from an energy from above to below? During Geulah's Mashiach, future Geulah, are we supposed to accomplish in the opposite manner from below to above? Which would mean we, do ha- we have to do the work instead of it coming through miracles from the heavens. So there are some legitimacy to what you're writing, but let's put it into context. Yes, it says, Nigla that Yitzhiz Mitzrayim was Mamayla Lamata. It was the Ebershter that elevated the Jewish people and freed them ultimately. And they themselves were in the darkest place. It says in the 49 Shari Tuma, gates of impurity. Had they stayed a little longer, they would never have been able to leave. That's how dark it was. So this is considered Nasarusa de la That's why in month of Nisan is Mamayla Lamata. Tishrei is Mamata Lamayla. Mamayla Lamata. A month of miracles. In Ir, we begin the work of counting the Omer and preparing ourselves to Matan Teda. It's somewhat a Mamata Lamayla. Matan Teda is a combination of both, but also primarily above, downward. What language of Chsidis are Susa de la But yes, indeed, the Kavana is that it should be also integrated and internalized and be initiated from below. So though we get the gift from above and we're given the strength, but the ultimate purpose is that you and I should initiate. That's why a person desires more one measure of, through his own effort than nine measures as a gift. It becomes yours. You own it. You internalize it. Which really explains the whole purpose of Golis in the first place. Is that we should now do the work and refine ourselves and the world around us that when it comes to Gula Mitis Vashlema will have the saturation and the entire divine being permeated through our work, that the flame rises on its own, meaning that we have initiated this effort. And by the Asa Mashiach comes, we'll have both milas, both qualities together, the highest revelations, but now we have earned our way to be able to receive it. This is essentially, in the words of the Arizal, you talk about the infinite divine filled everything. Whatever everything means, everything that would exist. Complete, infinite, infinite divine consciousness. In order to create existence, God concealed, and the energy, the, the infinite energy receded, leaving space for another consciousness, leaving space for another identity. Then comes creation. And our work is to now, through our efforts, access that energy through the kav, the very thin ray of light, grow until we can reconnect to the energy pre-tzimtzum. Think of it like a teacher and a student. The teacher is a brilliant, infinite mind. He conceals that mind in order to teach olive bays, A, B, C, spoon-field the child. The child grows and his containers get expanded to the point in 40 years, he can come to relate and understand the, the true intention and the true meaning of the teacher's ideas. 
So Chassidus asked the question right in the beginning of Samach Vav. If at the end of the day, you're just drawing back the energy that was there before the Tzimtzum, what was accomplished? It's like back to square one. We had already the energy before the Tzimtzum. So what was the goal? So answer number one is now it's in our kalim. We're able to receive it. Before, it was just an energy was not receivable, meaning because the recipient was not, didn't exist. And the second answer, the deeper answer is that through Aveda, you actually mamshech an er chadosh, a new unprecedented energy that wasn't there even before the tzimtzum. That's what Aveda is because that's what Nesava Kadosh Baruch Hu, God desired a dira b'tachtenim, not a dira b'alyenim, a home of the material world that is con- where the divine is concealed and that we, through our efforts, should reveal more and more. That's what we do through Torah and Mitzvah, through the generations. Shitzis Mitzrayim was the beginning of the process. And the Gula Asida, which, which we're standing at the threshold of, future Gula, which can come any given moment, is the end of the process. So that came from above, and yes, now the Gula will have come through all the effort and work, the Mesiris Nefesh, the sacrifices, dedication, commitment of the billions of mitzvahs, good deeds, and Torah study through the generations. Okay. There's a question on the Sicha and Shmois. There's a Sicha, one in, uh, uh, about the Tochen, about trust. So the question is, what are some practical examples of how we can express betochen trust in our everyday lives? Okay. Sichan Shmei is practical on how we can express betochen in our everyday lives. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, learning the first sichan for Shmei is in Chelek Lamed Vav. In volume 36 in Lekut HaSichas, there's a powerful sicha talk about trust betochen. I was wondering if you'd be able to shed some light and provide practical examples of how we can express betochen, trust in our everyday lives, and when, and when we meet challenges. For example, if I hear that someone is ill, God forbid, my business lost a lot of money, and even with regard to seemingly simple matters, such as my favorite items being sold out in the store, what should be my reaction in the first instant to these occurrences? If we understand correctly from the Sikha, the Rebbe is saying that Moshe should have been calm when the Jew answered back to him for breaking up their fight. That was Dasan Aviram that I referred to earlier. But this was because he was doing a mitzvah, firstly to kill the Egyptian and secondly to stop the Jews fighting. However, not always are the challenges we face backed up by a mitzvah, so to speak, and that's why we have to remain calm. Thank you for your time reading this and the and the immense chizuk you give to the Jewish people through your classes. Thank you. So I'm not going to review the whole sikha. You can learn the sikha. It's a powerful sikha. Yes, based on the stories in Shemois and about betochen, a lot from the Chavis Alavavis. That betochen is the idea that we don't run the world, God runs the world. No matter what happens, even if it aggravates us and annoys us, God runs the world. And trusting God is the key to it all. That even if something seems negative, or is negative in our eyes, in our experience, we trust that God will make it good. So examples would be, well, simple examples are when this, something upsets you. So it's natural to get upset, but then look at the lessons that we have to learn. Look at Yosef. What did he do when he met his brothers? Instead of being upset and wanting vengeance, he said, God sent me here. 
He rose above. He transcended the situation. In other words, that we are not defined by events that happen to us. They happen to us. But your identity is not defined by them. You learn from them. You grow from them. So it's hard to expect a human being to be completely never upset about anything. But you can catch yourself. So simple practical things is to keep cognizant that this world is not under our control. Circumstances will happen. We always pray that everything will be great, but something happens, there's a setback, there's an illness, God forbid a loss. This does not mean the end of the story. You have to grow from it and learn to grow because there's a bigger, deeper story. So Betochen gives us the strength to forge ahead. It also gives us the strength to hope and believe. Now you'll say, what happened? So many people had Betochen and it didn't end up the way they wanted. They prayed, they trusted, they said, Trachgut, Vedzangut, think good, it'll be good, and it didn't end up the way they wanted. So first of all, God doesn't always do it the way we understand it to be. And it doesn't take away from our betochen. Your betochen was not a waste. Secondly, the good may come in a different way in a different time. And the betochen feeds all of that. So it's not like, oh, I trusted, and then I realized my trust was misplaced or my trust was, uh, was unnecessary. God forbid... Betochen Hashem is a relationship with God. And the story doesn't, doesn't end there. Even in the worst type of circumstances that we really suffer greatly, and no one should ever know of that, Betochen remains strong because you always believe God is good and God will do good. And even what you're seeing, even though you cannot relate to the goodness and it remains a mystery, there's something deeper going on. And ultimately, Eid Hashem can after be we will thank God even for the things that seem like an affliction. That doesn't mean the affliction is good, but what the affliction leads to can end up being a greater good, as it was the Jews in Mitzrayim. So it's really about developing within yourself resources and tools that help us develop an an equilibrium that allows us to navigate through any type of circumstance. That's what it comes down to. So the more you learn, and these are practical applications, the more you learn about your soul, the more you learn about your destiny, the more you're committed to it in action, and the more you emote to it. So we have your Teira, Tvila, and Mils Chasad, cognitive, emotional, and behavioral conditioning. Study, prayer, action. In the context of understanding and feeling and acting that God is with you, the more power you have to get through anything that comes your way. And that's the work we have to do. Does it take work? Yes. Sometimes it's a lot of work. Sometimes it's very hard. And that's why we need friends and we need support. And I say l'charav and mentors and a rebbe. All these give us strength to get through the more difficult moments. But that's what betochen is. It's an actual tool, an instrument, a blessing that was given to us. Okay. So with that, we cover Shemais. Now this week is also, will be Chav Tevis. The Chav Tevis is the day of the Yartzeit of the Rambam. The Rebbe, especially in the Mems, when he began talking a lot about the Rambam, learning Rambam, the, the Takana, to learn Rambam every day. So Chav Tevis Every year the Rebbe would speak about it. I don't know if the Rebbe made reference to Chav Tevis in earlier years before that, 
He may have. But definitely on a regular basis in the 80s, after 1984, Tavshimem Dalad, when the Rebbe Anachar Shapesa began, instituted the learning of Rambam. Also, it connected to another yard site. Four days later, Chavdalatev is the Alta Rebbe. But that we'll talk about next week. So just let's make mention about less Torah 20, the Chav Tevis. The Rebbe would compare the Alter Rebbe with the Rambam and the Alter Rebbe, that they both have many similarities as leaders in their time, including the similarity that they both wrote something in thought, Ashkafe, the Rambam's Meir Nevuchim, God of the Perplexed, and Halacha, Mishnah Teda, Yad HaChazak, and the Alter Rebbe, Tanya, Chesidus, and Shulchan Aruch, Bala Tanya, Ba Shulchan Aruch. Both Primius and Nigelitere, even though Mirna Vuchim is not considered Kabbalah or Said, but still has the element of Hashkafe, if you wish, philosophical dimension, and many other similarities. In regard to us to take a lesson from Chav Tevis, would be that the Rambam, what he did was also organize. The Rambam, in his introduction to Mishnah Tere, says why he calls it Mishnah Tere, because he says, I'm collecting together everything from Teda Shebiksah, from the written Teda, and everything that all the Teda Shebalpeh, the commentary, and the oral Teda, till my time, that it all be collected in one place. The idea of a Kula Teda Kula being in one accessible. Shas does it, but not in an organized way. You can have laws of Shabbos in Mesech Erevin, or Mesech Nidah for that matter. So it does have a general structure of the Shisha Sidre Mishnah. However, the Rambam organized it literally that all the laws that you can find on a certain topic are in that particular place. The Rambam is also unique that he also includes laws of Beis Amikdash and laws of Mashiach. Shulchan Aruch will only have laws that are relevant in our time when there's no Beis Amikdash. So when the Rebbe instituted the learning of the Rambam, he used that as one of the main reasons because it collects Kola Tere Kula and if all the Jews everywhere learn Rambam, so you have Achdus Yisrael and Achdus HaTere, which is all prepares us for the Geula. So the Rambam was a unifier in that sense, a unifier of all parts of Tere, which teaches us the idea Tere is Zeis HaTere Adam, Zeis Tere Adam, the Tere is like a human being, it's made of different components and parts, but it's all part of one organism. In this case, the Teda is one with the Ebershta, and through Teda, we have the capacity to unite with the divine. Yichud Nifla, as the Alter Rebbe says in chapter 5 in, in, in Tanya, Tfisa, that there's no Yichud like the Yichud of the mind when it learns an Indian and Teda. So it's uniting the Jews together all Jews learning the same thing, uniting Kola Teda Kula and uniting it with Eberster. So you have all the the Agdusa, the Agdus, on every level possible. And this was the Rambam facilitated. One of the things we remember, the Yeva Yartzeit, you remember all the Kol Maisev and Kola Vedose, as the Alter Rebbe says in the Geras 28, that all his work is elevated and Poil Yeshua's Bekerav Oritz, and affects salvations, Bekerav Oritz, even in Mitzrayim, even in the, in the depths, in the abyss of the earth, even in the slowest levels. So it's a good time to remind each of us to intensify and begin, if we haven't, learning Rambam, the Rebbe gave three options, either three chapters a day or one chapter a day and finish in three years, 
three chapters a day, you finish around a year. Or Sefer mitzvahs that corresponds to the chapters, the mitzvahs of each day. And these could all be found online, what exactly, where they're up to in the order of learning the cycle of the study of the Rambam. And by doing so, we unite with each other, we unite with the Tehidim, we unite with Hashem in unprecedented ways. Okay. With that, I want to do some follow-up. A few follow-ups. One is on Sarva Tevis was last week. So a person wrote, following up your discussions about the 10th of Tevis, why do we have four fast days to commemorate the different stages leading up to and including the destruction of the temple, the Beis Amidus, instead of just one day, perhaps Tisha B'Av? commemorating the destruction, all the events that led up to it. By contrast, the exodus from Egypt had different stages, but we only get one holiday of Pesach to include all the events. Moshe being born and taken to the palace was the first stage leading to our, to our exodus. Moshe going to Parai and saying, let my people go was another stage. The ten plagues were another stage. And finally, the splitting of the sea, the final stage of us leaving Egypt. All these events didn't happen on the same day, so why not four separate holidays to commemorate them as we do for the Churban Beis Amikdash? I will conclude by saying the Beis Amikdash be rebuilt and revealed and may lead to many new joyous holidays. Okay, an interesting question. And uh, I've not seen this discussed. The contrast. As far as Mitzrayim goes, yes, many stages, but they're all included in Pesach. And actually the seventh of Pesach is when Kriyas Yamsev happened seven days after they left Egypt. So we don't commemorate everything that happened till the Exodus. We commemorate the Exodus, which was on the 15th of Nisan. That's when Pesach begins. And goes through Kriyas Yamsuf. So we have all these events in that seven, eight-day period. So though it's not different holidays, it's different days in one holiday. When it comes to the fast days, you don't have any fast day that goes extends. So the four fast days, even though they're separate times of the year, you could say they are one extension, one flow. But still, the question still begs, why are there separate days? So you can say, because the whole purpose, as I discussed, of the events that happened, why God wanted to allow the Babylonians and the Romans to destroy the Pesach let it happen in one moment. Why did it have to happen over a period of time? First, Nebuchadnezzar lays a slave Jerusalem in siege. There's a siege over around Jerusalem. And then later, a long time after that, he finally, he finally um, breaches the wall. And then three weeks later, there's the destruction of the, of the temple, burning it down. Because the Ebershtah wanted that the Jews do tshuva. And these were all warnings. It's like when you have pain. Pain is a warning signal that something is wrong. Do something about it. Same thing it says about the marble. Why didn't the marble right away begin flooding? It first began to rain. It was a warning, and they had the opportunity, ample opportunity to do tshuva. So you could say the days, as the Rambam says, why do we fast? Because it teaches us that we shouldn't be callous. That when the negative circumstances, when a catastrophe strikes a community or an individual, don't think it's just an accident, mikra nikris. Do something about it, act on it. So each fast day reminds us to act and do the right tshuva that we need to do. When one didn't work, so they gave us another day. That perhaps can be one explanation. In addition to the fact that I said before, that even Pesach is not one day, it is 
over a period of time, except there, it all happened within seven days. So that would be the explanation for this. Another question, on Pashavayichi. Why do we speak about the... Bo- um, let me just say one more thing before I go to that. This lesson to us is very clear. There are times in life where something happens, and it's a small signal that we should act on it. Maybe a setback, maybe something, a misfortune, but not necessarily a terrible one. Unfortunately, many of us don't act. This can be even a health scare. Or it could be other areas of our lives that God is being merciful and telling us, like pain. Don't wait till it gets much worse. Nip it in the bud. So the lesson to us is a tremendous lesson. And sometimes when that doesn't happen, things begin to intensify. So it's a stronger warning. So it's about being wise and not waiting till it's out of control. Nipping it in the bud and solving the issue at the outset. And this can be matters in our own personal lives. It could be matters between spouses and shalom bias, between parents and children. Don't wait to the point where it gets far, far more difficult to do something about it. Small infection, don't wait, let it fester. Do something and remedy it as soon as you can. Okay, another question about Bayechi. Why do we speak about the bones of Yosef being taken with Bnei Yisrael when they left Mitzrayim if the body of a tzaddik remains intact? So the end of Pasha Vayechi, that's what it says. So the Gemara Seita already talks about it, and the Rebbe actually has a very powerful sikha, Vayechi Tov Shemam Zayin, where he cites that Gemara Seita. That one of the reasons was because Yosef was not, was not perform Kibbut Av for 22 years, so it had an effect even though a tzaddik remains intact. And other explanations all cited there. So check it out there. And there he actually also interprets it, Lamal Yusuf, that Atzomis Yosef comes from the Atzmus, is the Etzim of Yosef that remained. So sometimes you have the Atzomis and the entire body, and sometimes you have the essence. So this is Vayichi Tov Shemem Zayin. Okay. Thanks for your broadcast and everything you do. May Hashem bless you with good health and strength and Chaim Nitzchim with Mashiach. That was the end of the last question. I forgot to read it. To our, fearless, to our fearless leader and lyrical mashpia and rich mellifluous voice, Sholem Uvracha. The question isn't so much of a chassidus question, but maybe you know. Yaakov blesses Zvulun, Lechef Yom Yishkin. Yet according to maps I found online of Zvulun's tribal land allotment, it was landlocked also on all sides. To compound the, to compound the question, Rashi explains, Chef Yomim Ti Arze. Did Yaakov's bracha remain unfulfilled? So this is a question that's asked that when you go to Yeshua, where it actually talks about the Chalukas Haaretz, when they actually divided the land to the tribes, it seems that Zvulun, Usher seems to be the one on the water, on the on Chayf Yomim. And, and, and the Zvulun seems to be somewhat inland, right, after Usher. So though there, this has been discussed and commentaries, most commentaries explain that, no, that, that, that to reconcile it with Yaakov's Blessing, you have to say that he had some, either part of the land, it's not exactly, when you read the details, it doesn't say he did not have anything on the water. It just could be interpreted that way. But they all say that based on Yaakov's blessing, and especially later also it says, that he was, that they were merchants, and therefore they, they were merchants that were on the water, and that's where the shipping happened. That you have to say that either they had a part of the land, or... Usher had some of the water and Lozvulun had the other part of the water. 
There are different explanations given for it that I've seen, and you can look it up in the different commentaries. If you want to have exact sources, I can send you a very interesting article, article that collects all the commentaries. Even those one or two commentaries that say that he did not have, that Zvulun did not end up having actual land on the water, but that doesn't mean they couldn't have made an agreement with Asher, and they could have still been the merchants that... You know, not everybody that's, that has a shipping industry lives on the water necessarily. So they were close enough. But, but nevertheless, that's a minority. Most of the commentaries do explain that, that, Zvulun, that, that Yaakov's blessing was fulfilled and Zvulun was living on the water of the Mediterranean, Yamagodl. And, uh, and that addresses that. Okay. As far as a lesson from that goes, Smach Zvulun B'Tseisecha Smach Rebbe with tight smach, rejoice. So even though it's Yisachar by Elecha, Yisachar was in the tents because they were learning Teda, but Zvulun went out, outside of Teda, into the material world, but smach, the real simcha of fulfilling the Sava Baruch is going outward into the material world. And Hashemah doesn't remain in Gan Eden, in the in the tents of Teda, but it goes out, and there it transforms the world into a home for God, which creates the true joy, the transformation of darkness to light. Okay. Now, some other questions. So, is it okay... To listen to a sikha of the Rebbe on double speed. To, notice, to speed up a video of the Rebbe, or is that disrespectful? So today we have that option. When you replay a video, people tell me they replay the video, so in our program they can listen to in 30 minutes, if it's double speed, by all means, if it helps. But the question is, is it appropriate to do it with the Rebbe? So I, I don't know if there's a halacha around this, but definitely from a point of view of respect, I think it's, it's not a respectful thing to do. It's not just a matter of, number one, once you take the time to listen, what's, what's the rush? And it's respectful. The teacher is teaching, the Rebbe is teaching, he's speaking at his speed. And maybe you'll, you'll absorb it better as well. But even one to argue that for whatever reason you can listen to more that way by listening double, hearing the Rebbe's voice distorted in that fashion may not be covered Again, I don't know if Arav Paskin on this, and I don't know if it's fitting for a psak, but definitely from a Hedigish point of view, I would say no. But again, this is a Hedigish. I can't say it's also to do it, not allowed to, but it's, 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 my feeling is that it's a little disrespectful, especially just like you say, you don't look at a king when he's taking a haircut, even though we know he's taking a haircut. Certain things, you just maintain a certain decor and, uh, and respect that's my short answer for that. Okay. A okay. bunch of other questions. Let's go to a Sholem Bayis, part of the Sholem Bayis uh, series. But disagreements about having children. So there's two questions. I'll do one at a time. First question goes like this. It's also a follow-up to last week. Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for all your videos. I've been inspired and found practical lessons in each of your episodes each week. Thank you. 
I've been married for several years, and while my husband and I have strong relationship, there's one recurring concern. We don't yet have children. This is due to one thing that my husband has expressed to me, and that is that he's afraid of having children that have any association with a family member who is diagnosed, diagnosed with some mental condition. He is socially not aware and often embarrassing to be around this family member. Many people have difficulty communicating with him. I've learned to adjust to situations that have come my way. However, my husband was never able to get used to it and cannot cope with the thought that our child may be affected by these genes. I understand my husband's perspective and apprehension, but I don't know how to handle it anymore. My husband has developed a real fear of the situation. It's very extreme. He, he, my husband comes from a family that speaks very highly of themselves and talks lowly about a lot of people. Lowly, I should say. Lowly about a lot of people. So it's possible being the youngest, my husband's gotten the mindset from his family. He's very afraid of what people will think and that the family member who has this problem will ruin our image. How do I respond to my husband and deal with this fear? Sometimes when we speak about it, I'm just silent and, let, and give him a, a listening ear. And sometimes I tell him it's in God's control. I used to defend myself, but that didn't help at all. We've gone to couples therapy and nothing came of it. We both feel that we should see an individual therapist, but he's hesitant because our first few negative experiences with therapists, because of our first few negative experiences with therapists, and because he thinks nothing will help. He tells me he just can't do it. Please help. Okay. Well, I, I read this letter even though it's sensitive matter is because I have had different people ask me similar questions over the years, especially lately I've had a few people, some in person, some in writing. So I thought it's appropriate for all of us to address. And even those that, thank God, don't have to deal with this problem, it's still, we can learn, always, we can always learn from a challenge how to deal with things. Yes, the concerns are legitimate, but this goes back to Betochen, the Eibishter which is that God ultimately sends us children and God is the one that sends us blessings. Anything can happen to anyone. So the fears are not coming, they're coming from a human place, they're not coming from a Torah place, which is important. And I'm not here to criticize your husband. I'm here just to put state it as it is. So the real challenge as I see it is how do we come to a place of betachem, of a couple, and doesn't matter who, who has certain resistance for whatever reason, and have a betochen and say, these are blessings of God, and let me make a keli for the blessing, and Hashem will bless that everything be fine. Now, does a person who has such fears need to address it? Fine, you can talk. If you can find a therapist, great. But I don't think this is between husband and wife. I think it's between husband and God. Thank God, your husband should thank God that you 
are holding on and don't have this fear because you trust that God will send the healthy child and everything will be fine. So I don't think it should be a battle between husband and wife. I think you as a wife should find ways to encourage your husband to talk to Mashpia, to look at letters from the Rebbe where the Rebbe speaks about similar matters where people had different fears because that's what it comes down to. And sometimes the fears manifest in other ways. There are other things people don't want to do because they're afraid. But there's only one God. And to be a couple and not being able to have a child and, and willingly not having a child for a fear that is really remote. It's not like it's a guarantee because there's a family member that something will be. It's, 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 and you have the betochen Hashem. That's what we need to work on. Mom, I'm saying it's easy? No, especially time has passed and your husband has gotten so-called dug in and now his fear is already, the fear itself has become his reality. But I would not give up, but I would not do it into a fight. I would do it through love. We love each other. We need to build betochen. I'm with you. Let's do this together. Let's bring another person in. It has to be that way because if you do it with any other tension, it'll just add to the anxiety, which only make more fear and, and things could get much worse than they are in your relationship. You don't want to undermine the relationship. I would also suspect, even though I have no reason to know of evidence, that the fears come maybe of his own inner insecurities, which only contributes. And again, I'm not delegitimizing de- why he has the fear, but that's how we Jews work. You have betachan and the Ebershtah. You trust, and you let the blessings flow. And, we'll, and the blessings themselves will get rid of your fear. Imagine, I speak now, if the husband was listening, imagine holding your little child, the nachas, the joy, that itself will make your life elevated. And that's briefly what I would say. If you want to speak with me, and it's something that I can be of help to, easy to contact me, please feel free to email me, give me your number, and I'll be happy to address this on a more private, and more personal basis. Okay, next question. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you for your lessons each week. I watch every single one and gain a lot of insight. What to do if the, if, if the wife wants children and the husband is just not ready? We're both in school and are working very hard. We clearly do not have a steady income or enough money to raise a family. However, my perspective is that having a family is such a big mitzvah that you have to just trust in God. However, my husband's perspective is very logical. He simply says it's not practical to have a child until we have a steady income. The conversation is ex- completely exhausted by now. I've tried everything, but we both are very under, under both, but we are both are very understanding of each other. We have not succeeded to compromise. on this issue. It's already been more than a year that I've been desperately wanting to begin building a family. I just don't know what to do at this point. Please help. Thank you. Well, as opposed to the previous question, where the fear is, I'm not going to say more legitimate, but it has something more tangible. This idea, the Rebbe addressed very clearly in Tovshin Man when he started talking and discouraging family planning, and he said, every child brings a blessing. Listen, you get married, it's also going to be more expensive than living alone. And yet you get married. Why? Because the importance of it, the love, the companionship, 
What do you think money is for? Money is in order to bring beauty into this world. So if I was able to speak to your husband, I would just try to tell him that children is a blessing. That's what you work for. If you see his children as a burden, as an expense, and you're expenseless. No, children is the end. It's the end of the day. It's your legacy. These children will continue your life. And the nachas and joy of having a child, I mean, what can I say? So here too, it's a matter of re-educating. And if a person does have the betachen, and especially a chaser of the Rebbe, it's very clear what we should be doing. So I look again, not through arguments, but through love and through kind ways of recalibrating and reframing the subject matter. Because again, it's not just about a child, it's in general the attitude. And how much money is enough? And let's say God blesses you with less money later in life. God should bless everyone with wealth. So then what? Everything is determined based on the budget? You work harder and God blesses and we keep that in mind. So to, to make children dependent on how much money we have, to me, is not the spirit of Teda Yiddishkeit, not just to me. I'm just repeating what the Rebbe says. And Bechlal what Teda says. Why are we here in this world? We're in this world just to be comfortable and have enough money to be in the bank? We're here to fill the world, have children, and bring light to the world, transform the world. So I would work on and try to educate. Not you, the wife, should educate the husband. But find ways, in nice ways, diplomatic ways, tactful ways, that your husband has to review his way of looking at the world, including children. And again, it was always helpful to talk to someone. I wouldn't look at it as marital therapy because it should be between your husband and talking to a party that helps him build that confidence and build that strength and build that betochen rather than it being between husband and wife. It's not really between husband and wife, even though the wife wants the child and the husband doesn't at this point. And at the end of the day, it's not a conflict. It's more the husband needs to be educated. And I would say the opposite the other way around. If the woman doesn't want to have a child, then the husband does. Whatever the reasons may be. And again, I'm not talking about anything that's dangerous or health matters and so on. I'm talking about choices made during the panosa or other fears or concerns. Okay. So two more questions. The next one, truth versus tradition. Do I pursue intellectual truth no matter where it may lead me, even if that causes me to leave Yiddishkeit? Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you for your weekly cast and for sharing your wisdom with us. I'm a devoted chassid, the Bavitzah chassid, who is committed to this way of life. However, I am aware of the world outside, and after much inquiry and thought, I cannot say that I am convinced of the validity of Torah and Yiddishkeit. My question is, what is the path to pursue? Do I pursue the intellectual truth in the manner of Kotsk, no matter where it may lead me, even if that causes me to leave Yiddishkeit, or do I continue leading the life that I know and love, even though I have serious misgivings on an intellectual level? This is a serious question that I've been wondering about for a very long time. Thanks. Well, since you're candid, I'll be candid, equally candid. You may never find absolute proof for the truths of Torah and Yiddishkeit. Because the Abish created a world, an agnostic world, where he says, 
when he tells Moshe Rabbeinu, why is it saying Nasa Adam? We shall make man. We? Moshe says we? That will leave room for people to think there's a duality. Shituf. says Hashem. Those that want to make a mistake will make a mistake. What does that mean? God is planting a mistake. He created a world where he concealed his divine presence. That's called the Tzimtzum Adishin very well. And no matter how devout someone is, there's still room for Bechira. We're not living in Ganeidin, in spiritual worlds where there's no two choices. There, there's one clarity. There's one reality. We live in a world where there's a possibility always for two choices. And we have the ability, to choose life. So if you're looking for absolute, you may not find absolute. And if you choose, God forbid, to go a different approach, you also have no absolute proof that that's right. So we have to make choices based on not only what we grew up with, but based on what you can live with honestly. Is Yiddishkeit provide you with a healthy life, with a loving life, with the ability to actualize your potential and live up to your mission in this world? Even if you may have questions, and we all have questions, but you don't want questions to control your life. So be an honest person, be a truthful person, but make a choice. It's a choice to be made. So I am not going to give you anything here that I can tell you that's going to persuade you 100%. And on the other hand, I'm not going to tell you, oh, ignore your questions and just live a life because it's comfortable or because you don't want to rock the boat. You're allowed to ask questions. There's no problem with that. But don't let questions define your reality. Let purpose define your reality. Now you may say, who says life has purpose? Fine, that's a question to ask. So that's a choice you make. Intelligent people know there are choices, and you make a choice and you live by it. When a soldier enlists in the army, he may not have 100% know that this exactly is the right thing, but once he's there, he's committed. And again, unless something is repulsive, or something is destructive, then this is the cause you've committed to. Like Rav Shmuel Munkus, Shmuel Munkus said to the Alta Rebbe, if you're a Rebbe, nothing will happen to you. And if not, you deserve the worst because you took away Elam Hazar, the pleasure of Elam Hazar for so many people. Now he was sure that the Rebbe is real. That's why he could say that. So it's a choice we make all the time. So I would suggest, learn Chesidus, learn more Chesidus, saturate your soul with spiritual teachings, what I mean here is chassidus. And that creates deeper connection. Are there questions? There'll be questions. We have a divine soul, we have an animal soul, and they battle with each other. That's the way it's meant to be. But you don't want to make a decision because there's a doubt. Doubts can linger, but don't let doubt control your life. That's how I would respond to this. So I think that's called an emes, a truthful, a truthful approach acknowledging their questions, but don't let that become the decision maker. Because that is not, that's also doubts are doubts. You can doubt doubts as well. Doubt itself should be doubted. You can be skeptical about skepticism. That's also part of an open-minded approach and a truthful approach. Okay. Well, one final question. This viewer discretion advised. It's a sensitive question. I was weighing whether I should read it or not, but I will. But again... If children or others, so I'm giving ample uh, to viewer discretion and uh, listener discretion advised. Hello, Rabbi Jacobson. This is a difficult topic as, and probably as uncomfortable for you to read 
as uncomfortable it was for me to write. But I cannot find this anywhere, so I'm bringing this up here. If you feel it's appropriate, please discuss this in an adequate way. And if you don't, I fully understand and not hold it against you. To be as brief and vague as possible and cover as much as I can in a few words as possible, do you feel, from the lens of Yiddish Kaksidis and Kabbalah, that, that does it address about varied unconventional forms of intimate activity and expression? In particular, having these desires can be a, a source of extreme guilt and isolation, even if they are hardwired. If need to be spelled out, I'm talking about kinks and fetishes of different sorts. Answer in whatever way you feel best. I know it's a vast area. Thank you. So the reason I'm addressing this is because there's no area in Torah that does not address even though it's true, certain platforms are more appropriate than others for certain topics. But because there are many different types of people who listen to this program, <clears throat> I wanted to, number one, demonstrate that, yes, I will address it. And number two, it may help some people. That's the main point of addressing it. Not just, we're not addressing it just to address it. As you probably know, I avoid by all means sensationalism, and so therefore it's not coming from that point as well at all. The general attitude toward intimacy and Torah needs to be qualified in the following way. And I've talked about this a lot in the earlier episodes, all the way when I began this almost nine years ago. My life has applied. And that is the following. On one hand, you find that there's no more guilt and shame than around sexuality and intimacy. Even Odom and Chava, as soon as they were aware, they covered themselves. They were ashamed. Now, shame is a good thing in that sense. Why? Because certain things need to be covered. A newborn child or Adam and before Chetet Sadas were not conscious about their, their sexuality and their and sexual organs and so on. It was all part of Hashem's beautiful creation. But once you're aware, yes, there are things that are done in public and things that are private. Not secret, private, intimate. The Holy of Holies was also covered up. Not because there was something to be ashamed of, because it's intimate. It's intense power deserves and needs to be covered because we live in a hostile world, in a dark world that can abuse or misunderstand these, in, in these very powerful internal forces. But that's a healthy shame. The problem is that it's spilled over to unhealthy shame and guilt and neurosis. And entire psychologies, including Freud, have been written about this. So some see it as a necessary evil. Some religions see it that way. That Ramban, in this famous letter that Hassanim learned, says clearly, it's not a Dover Maguna, it's nothing to be ashamed of, it's not a shameful thing. God created us with the ability to have children. And to have children, you need to be intimate. The Torah speaks about it very directly. Be one flesh. It means to know each other. Knowing is a form of intimate connection. You learn Chassidus, you learn that it's really, the Prosik means that Zohar Nekeva, are becoming one, intimately one, das is kashrus. The end of chapter 3 in Tanya. That what? Is kashrus, that they become one, like they become one with Hashem, the tzalem alikim in which they were created. In other words, intimacy, yichud, a language used in Kabbalah and Exodus, is union. It's an intimate union with God. And adati comes from the word yihud, which is marriage and intimacy. 
I will be one with you there in the Mishkan Hashem says to Moshe. So if you, if you mafshit from Gashmiyuse, which means you remove the, the callousness of it, it's a refined state of union. And if we do not allow negative elements are connected to it, it's the purest form of union, intimate union with the divine. And the sacred environment in marriage, intimate union with, between spouses, husband and wife, that has the power, the only power to create yesh ma'ayin, bring born, giving birth to a child. Al-derech yesh ma'ayin, as Chassidus says. The power of eternity. So when you think of it in that context, the shame is only healthy shame, which means you cover it up. You don't speak about it in public. You don't do things like this in public. Not because of guilt, but because it's a very intimate and deep experience. Just like it says about the Eberster, There will no longer be a garment that conceals God's face. Total intimacy. But today we need to have the garments because we need to have the concealments because we can't appreciate that light unless it's in the proper setting. So in that context, when you understand intimacy in that way, and I have a whole chapter on it in Torah Meaningful Life, intimacy, that it's not just an act, it's a behavior, it's a state of being, a state of union, sacred union. However, we do live in a world of klippus, where the and the negative forces wean, nurse and, 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 and get energy from these very powerful, that's why, Intimacy in the wrong way can turn into the worst forces. Things that consume people, that destroy people. And it's from the hardest tivus, the hardest desires to control. Because of its holy power. So when it comes to the question like you're asking me here, this is where a person, has to ask themselves, what is intimacy for you? Is intimacy just your own pleasures? Or are you connecting to the Abish in the deepest way? And not taking away. Taylor says you should have pleasure. In the sacred union of marriage, there should be pleasure. And it says even stronger statements about how husband and wife should enjoy each other in the fullest sense of the word with halachic guidelines. But should you indulge in it in the sense we're going beyond? Remember, Chassidus, we always say, that which you're not allowed, you don't do. And even that which you're allowed, you don't have to do everything. But you have to also remember, like the Gemara says, that there's a part of us, the more you feed it, the hungrier it gets. And that's why you need to fill your life and saturate your life with Teda, with mitzvahs, with Yiddishkeit, with chassidus, the powerful sicha. And I, Tavresh Ayendal, Chof Alef Kislev, where the Rebbe Rashab says, he says the only real solution to intimate challenges is chassidus, because it touches the same very core of the essence of a person. I gave a series of two classes on this. You can find it online. Intimacy and chassidus or something like that. So it's a whole attitude. Once you get caught up, which I don't want to repeat again the words in this question, that's where the problems become. Then becomes it starts controlling you. I don't want to call it an addiction, but that's what it is. Intimacy is a means to become intimate with another human being in a sacred way, because you become intimate with God in that fashion. Malchus and Zah. That's where it's rooted. Once you get into this world and starts, you start, the negative forces start feeding off of it and you become consumed with that, that's when there's problems. So I'm not getting into the halachas of it, you can go check with a rabbi. 
But as far as the chassidus of it, chassidus applied, it's an opportunity when a person does have these questions is to go figure out how you can turn the intimacy into a very deeper experience but not feeling the need to follow your Yetzirah or any type of desires that may be even permitted. But who says that you have to indulge in everything? And again, I'm not talking about abstinence or celibacy. I'm talking about channeling it into a holy experience. And that goes far deeper than just what goes on in the bedroom. It goes also into the relationship of a husband and wife, how they communicate with each other, how they work with each other, how they have a Friday night meal, how they host people, how they bring to others. If you are passionate about that, and that too is part of your intimacy, just a different form of it, then in general the intimacy will spread out and it won't be focused just on acts or on particular objects or any of that type of element. Now, by all means, people should enjoy each other, especially, as I said, in a sacred way, in a halachic way. But what is this ultimate focus should not be that, especially objectified, but rather part of the context of a holy, sacred life and a beautiful, enjoyable life, intimate with each other and intimate with Hashem and with the mission of for which we were created. So it's a good opportunity to also review Revisit your, your, your values, your standards, and your ultimate purpose in life. Okay, there's one more, this chassidus question, but because of time limits, I'm going to do the chassidus question next week. I, will, I addressed it a bit. It talks about shol shkipsatmeis. What exactly is shol shkipsatmeis? And shol shkipsatmeis and the Kedusha, then the Nitzvah's Kedusha, the spark of Kedusha. But that I will leave for the next uh, program due to time limits. I want to conclude on a positive note as we uh, go to the second half of the month of Tevis. Tevis is a month, Guf Nenemina Guf, connected somewhat to our discussion here, but all in a holy, sacred way that we transform the cold of the winter in this part of the world. And the darkness, as the lights, the, the nights uh, get longer, into light and into warmth through Teir and Chassidus, and through Chassidus supplied in all forms and fashions. May we merit which will bring We're here every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m. Thank you very much. Call Tuv and be blessed. This program is brought to you by My Life, Chassidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.